Well, good morning, Anthem. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Uh, look, uh, you guys should know before we get started, we love your pastor and your pastor's wife and really excited that they moved in close by down the streets, around the corner, down the street. So we're going to be neighbors and we're going to get to do uh, all the more uh, things together, uh, things like this. So um, the partnership that exists between uh, Harvest and, and Anthem and Arise is something that's Super precious to me. I think it's a great demonstration uh, of the power of the gospel uh, to everyone in Ventura. And like your pastor, I'm just stoked on, on how God's going to continue to use our unity uh, as we you know, continue to partner and lean into one another more and more. Uh, he, God's going to use that unity to powerfully change um, Ventura because that kind of unity is only possible through Jesus Christ and in the church of Jesus Christ. So uh, it's a huge privilege to to be here. Uh, I'm thankful for it. Why don't you take your Bibles, uh, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to be our text uh, for this morning. My goal is very simple. Uh, I want this Christmas to be your most joyful Christmas ever. Okay, just very simple, simple goal, kind of high and lofty, but uh, this is an amazing text, and I think uh, the Lord can do that. This Christmas, I want to be your uh, most joyful Christmas you've ever experienced up to date, and uh, I know I can see in, in some of your faces that some of you are already, like, giving up on this idea. <laughs> Right, and I don't know where that's coming from. Uh, maybe there's some family drama, or you know, maybe there's some like oh, past hard memories from Christmas, or or missing someone at the table this year, or something like that. Uh, but but that's I think this text is going to help us. So uh, let me ask you this: um, we we often believe that joy is going to come, especially joy at Christmas time, is going to come when we get Christmas uh, to fit our vision of what we want Christmas to be like, okay? And so when our vision of Christmas and our vision of what we want to be uh, kind of diverts, then we start to lose, believe we lose joy and believe we don't have the capacity to have joy in that season. Let me ask you this simple question. Uh, how many of you are done with your Christmas shopping already? Right? How many of you? Right? All right. A few hands. All right. Yeah. I, I'm not raising my hand. I'm just showing you what to do. Okay. That's not me. How many of you are really angry at the people who had their hands raised? Right? Right? There you go. That's right. And, and you know what? That's cool. That's okay because joy at Christmas doesn't come through gifts. We know that. We're old enough to realize that that's not uh, lasting. That's not going to get you there. Um, joy, from Chris, joy during Christmas, your greatest, most joyful Christmas isn't going to come uh, because of, of, of Christmas music, right? You're already tired of Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas, right? You're already sick of that by this point. You started it around Thanksgiving, hopefully not earlier, and, and you're already saying, we know that joy's not going to come from there. We know that joy's not going to come from like binge-watching Christmas romantic comedy movies, right, in Hallmark Channel. Anyone else? Oh, just my church. All right, well, that's good. I can skip that. <laughs> um, Right? It, it doesn't matter how many of those things you watch or how many of your Christmas traditions come to fruition. Joy doesn't come from those things really. Like we think they, it does, but it doesn't come from, joy comes from Jesus. Right? And so if you're going to have your, your most joyful Christmas ever, it's because you're going to be leaning into Jesus in a way this year that's unique 
and more, uh, more powerful than you have in years past. And that's why we're in Isaiah chapter 9. Okay? Isaiah chapter 9 is just an amazing text that gives us Jesus, and it's a quintessential Christmas text, which uh, it's perfect that we're in the book of Isaiah, that we've been walking through all of Isaiah for uh, quite some time uh, for this whole Advent thing, because Isaiah is addressing people in different historical circumstances. Uh, sometimes they're at war, sometimes they're at Sometimes they're talking about being taken over and deported. I mean, it's just a vast variety of historical circumstances that Isaiah is writing uh, for. And every single one of them, he always points to Jesus being the solution. Jesus being the ongoing hope. Isaiah 9 is uh, no different. If joy comes from Jesus, what we need this Christmas is a larger, better, more, uh, more intense and intimate uh, connection with Jesus this Christmas than ever before. So Isaiah chapter 9 is uh, the text. Let's look at, at, uh, at verse 1. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah no, sorry. Isaiah says, uh, says this, um, but there will be no gloom for who, her who was in anguish. Uh, in the former time he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the nations. Now, there's a lot of history, like I was talking about, uh, going on here. Um, and so, I, I, this text is steeped in geography. Okay, you can groan there. But there's, if you're going to understand this text, you're going to need to kind of get what Isaiah is talking about, if you grasp with me the geography, what uh, Isaiah is talking about in this text, you're going to get uh, more of Jesus. You're going to see what Jesus is doing here. So if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you can kind of go there. I think I might have. Uh, no, I don't. I'm good. Um, uh, look, here, here's the deal. Um, Israel and, uh, and Jerusalem are on the far southwest corner of what we call the Fertile Crescent, okay? And it's called the Fertile Crescent because it's legitimately just a, a crescent of land that is habitable. In the middle is this massive desert, okay? And so what's going on in this, and if you look in the back of, of your maps of just kind of the, the wider shot of Israel, let's see if I have one, yeah, there, um, on this side, on the east side, are all these four nations, Babylon, Assyria, all the bad guys, okay, are on one side, thanks, appreciate it, are on one side of the Fertile Crescent, Israel is on the far other. Now, the reason this is important is because anytime uh, your enemy or a conquering army wanted to travel from like Asia to Africa or from Africa to Europe, they had to go through Israel, and the most exposed uh, land of the people of Israel was the land on the north of their land because Israel, uh, Assyria, Syrians, Babylonians all had to come from the north down the Fertile Crescent into Israel. Now, here's the key, okay? Zebulon and Naphtali are the two tribes that occupy that northernmost territory. Those, no, those tribes are the most exposed. They're the most war-trodden. They're wrecked. And so when Isaiah's writing uh, Isaiah chapter 9, 
Isaiah writing about Nephtali and Zebulun, what he's saying is the most exposed and the most regularly destroyed place of Israel is going to be a, a land of blessing. They're going to experience glory. Now, the, the way of the sea that's being talked about in this verse is, is the road, it's still a road today, that they would travel around the, on the Fertile Crescent that kind of rides along the Mediterranean Sea by the time you get to the Israel. It's, it's the road that all the armies would take. And so when Isaiah says that God is making glorious the way of the sea and that there will be no gloom for the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, he is saying that the most vulnerable, exposed, the most regularly destroyed and suffering people on the front line, on the war path, are going to experience great joy. Like he's going to reverse this whole thing. Okay, that's uh, point, the first point that we get from our text, if you want to summarize it, if you take notes, is this. Joy increases when I'm desperate. Joy increases when I'm desperate. Because the people there in Zebulun and Naphtali would be the most desperate and the most suffering people in all the people of Israel. If they hadn't been destroyed in recent, around Isaiah 9, they're just about to be destroyed by Assyria coming down and, and conquering everything all the way to Jerusalem. And so these are are wounded, weary, grieving people. Now, it's also interesting to note that in the chapters previous on Isaiah, that these two tribes were part of a rebellion against God in their idolatry. They teamed up with foreign nations and started to attack their own people in Jerusalem. And, and so that was the plan. So not only are they like the most destroyed people of Israel, but they're also the rebels who got punished. They got disciplined for their idolatry and their rebellion. And so this, they're wounded, they're grieving, they're depressed, they're suffering, they're rebellious. And it's these people that Isaiah is promising joy to. And I think that's important for us to acknowledge this, this morning because a lot of us as, as Christians, we think that uh, our life, we're going to have joy when everything is the way we want it to be, when we're experiencing comfort and safety, when we're experiencing prosperity here and now that we can't have joy until then. But the promise that Isaiah is giving through Jesus Christ is that these lands in the midst of their valleys and in the midst of their destruction, while the rubble is still smoldering and the smoke is still rising, joy can be had because of Jesus. Joy comes to those who acknowledge that they're in desperate need, especially because of their rebellion. Joy comes for these people. We, so this is what we lean into in the gospel. We lean into, not as religious people who hide their sin or try to pay for our sin or cover over their, no, we, we are the first to admit in our families, in our communities, in our own hearts, hey, I'm in desperate need of Jesus. I'm on the borderlines, I'm the war path. There's temptation, there is failure, there's rebellion here, and I need Jesus. I'm desperate for Jesus. That desperate plea is answered with the promise of God each and every time he is faithful. He is a good God. Look what Isaiah promises to these people. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They have rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, uh, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A, a few things you need to notice about this text, okay? Uh, number one, it's in the past tense, and that's significant. Isaiah is talking about things that will happen in the future, but he's talking about them as though they had already occurred, right? You have increased its joy. You have multiplied. You have broken the, the yoke. It's, he's talking about God's acts that he, are, he is promising in the future as though they've already happened, and that's significant, okay? Because Israel, Isaiah, is so sure that this is his future, he can speak of it as though it's already happened. Like, take it to the bank. It's going to happen, and I think this is the second thing we need to notice from this text. It's point number two is simply this. Joy increases when I am certain of the future Jesus has promised me. Joy increases when I am sure and I am certain and I am absolutely convinced that this is my future. Which would be very hard when your house is smoldering on the ground and the armies are walking away. Which would be very difficult when there's loss and there's hurt and there's drama, and there's brokenness. Having eyes on the certainty of the prosperity and joy that God is bringing in your future would be very difficult. And uh, I think this is super helpful for me when I realize this. I, I, I don't do this often. I don't have our people jump around a ton, but uh, keep your finger in Isaiah 9, okay? And uh, flip over to Matthew chapter 4, or just scroll. I know you guys are cooler than my church. Uh, just, you know, that uh, Matthew chapter 4. I want you to see this with your own eyes, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, at the beginning of his ministry, okay? Beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says this, now when he, Jesus, heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived into, in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of, what? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's our text quoted in the New Testament. I love it when this happens. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. There's some differences in the text in this quote, um, and I love the differences. I, I think the New Testament authors can do whatever they want uh, with that, inspired by God, not something we get to do. But um, they, he, he uses the Old Testament, and he refers back to it. And I love the little, the little change that he puts at the end of verse 16. The light has dawned, rather than the light has shone, as it is in our text. It's, it's almost as though he's referring to this idea that it's just begun, right? It's just the dawn. It's just begun. I, I love this idea because... This is where my certainty comes from. Jesus has already, in his first advent, 
began to fulfill this prophecy. Now, it's not fully fulfilled yet. So I think that's kind of the difficulty we experience here is because we're living in between the two advents of Jesus. Advent means arrival, by the way, the coming of Jesus. So Jesus has one advent that's already occurred, that everything we celebrate on Christmas and on Easter, that's the first advent of Jesus. The second is the thing that we're looking forward to, that all of our hope and anticipation is, is being placed in, okay? The certainty of our future at that second advent is, is the source of joy for us. Okay, and we can be certain it happened because it's already begun. Jesus, God's not going to send Jesus to the first advent to come here and to die and to not finish the job. He is going to see it all the way through. Your future in Christ is certain because God isn't going to waste the death and resurrection of Jesus and not finish what he started. He's going to bring you home. And I love how in this text in Matthew chapter 4, it's almost like an inspired quote that stops at an inspired point. Because when you look back at Isaiah and, and Isaiah 9, the rest of the text that Matthew does not quote, it seems to be a description of the stuff that's going to happen in the second advent. And, and the Bible does this often. They'll quote, this is something that God is fulfilling in the first advent of Jesus, and then he stops and is like, the rest of it's still coming. The rest of it's still, that future is certain, and I know this because, and I can embrace this, this life of living in between the two advents of Christ because I know my future is going to be great, okay? Now, now here's how we take this home. I find in all my counseling as I'm meeting with people in my church who are going through struggles and going through difficulty and I'm pointing them to Jesus, I find myself often saying the same thing that I think, I believe all of us Christians need to hear. And it's simply this. This life is not supposed to be great. I mean, I I know that that sounds like a big downer, but there's a great reality in which Everything our heart is longing for and that we're anticipating is all bound up in the next return of Christ. And, and so there's some way in which, like I know your Instagram feed is beautiful and perfect. Okay, I get that. And I know that we all want to give this portrayal of life that's amazing and our families are all good and all. But the reality is, often in counseling, I'm like, you know what? That's what marriage is like in a fallen world until Christ returns. And yes, it's difficult. We got to embrace living in between the difficulty of living in between the promise and the fulfillment. And here we experience a lot of that as just difficulty. And I think this is a relief for us. Like again, life's not supposed to be awesome all the time. And if you're riding this wave of everything's amazing for you, I'm actually worried for your soul. Like, there's some lessons that we need to learn in the times of deep darkness and depression that you cannot learn when everything's going your way. There's Jesus that we grasp onto in those seasons that we never get if we don't experience those things. And I I want, I know it's not fun to experience loss and hurt. But we have joy because Christ 
has raised victorious and is coming in. That's exactly what he tells us in John chapter 16. Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulations. Look, it's not that great here. And if you try and make it great, you're going to be frustrated over and over again. If you try to make your kids perfect and your marriage this and try to portray all of that and try to have all your fun and joy here in this life, that's not going to go well for you. Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. I've come. I've brought peace. I've reconciled you to God. Your future is amazing because I've overcome and defeated sin and death on the cross. I've resurrected from the grave. Your future is great. Deal with today, okay? Cling to Jesus today. Embrace him in ways that you're not going to experience unless things are going wrong. And so you can have joy when, if this morning is, you're one of those where it's like, what the heck happened to December? Like, I never want to do this again. This is Jesus, just like, come, lean in on me. This, this is going to be great, okay? So the third thing I think we need to see in the text in Isaiah, go, go ahead and flip back to Isaiah chapter 9, is this. Joy increases when I embrace the true nature of Jesus, okay? Joy increases when I embrace the true nature of Jesus. And this is the, again, the quintessential Christmas text. Isaiah says this in verse 6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Now think about this. We're familiar with this text because you've been, some of you have been raised in the church. You've heard this text over and over again. It's in Christmas songs. It's the whole deal. Think about how this would land for the people that Isaiah is writing to. They've got a foreign army at the gate. They're getting killed. And God's like, hey, it's okay, a baby. You need to think about that. That's significant. Like, what is wrapped up in this baby? Okay. Um, also significant, the baby's not coming for another 700 years. They're still going to get conquered. They're still going to get deported. And this future anticipation of the baby is the solution for their problems, real-time, significant hurts and anguish that you can experience in this life. And it's solved by a baby coming 700 years in the future. That's how amazing this baby is. And, and I, I, as we consider that, now Jesus' first advent's in the past, his next advent's in the future, but every fi- difficulty that we face in between is designed to draw us t- to Jesus and make us depend more upon who he is, to discover more of how faithful he is and more of his character. And that's where joy increases when we use these things to discover more about the goodness of of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's so good. Joy increases when I embrace the true nature of Jesus. Now, I've got four kids. My wife is front row center, Becca, uh, here. We've been married 14 years next month. 14, right? Yeah. Um, 
14 years, I know we don't look that old, Asians don't age, and my wife is, still looks the exact same as the day I met her. Um, uh, but we've got four kids, okay? Um, and so what that means is that uh, we as parents have gone through the same exercise that all parents have uh, of naming your children. Remember this? Okay, I didn't realize there were rules, but like evidently you can't name them after ex-boyfriends that she's had. And, uh, you know, you can't name them after anything that sounds like a body part. That makes sense. But, you know, all those kind of things. But we've gone through this whole thing. Now, when we name our kids, we normally name them after things that sounded good or had some sort of family connection, right? And, and that's often the way we name our young kids. Um, that's not the way it goes in the Old Testament. When God gives someone a name in the Old Testament, it means something. Okay? Now, Titus, our oldest, uh, his name means was his name means honored guest. And Titus was uh, obviously a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul. His twin brother Silas, though, both nine years old. Um, his name means the one we asked for. Now I don't know what that means for his older brother, twin brother. But his name means the one we asked for. Silas was also a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul. Micah, our ultimate middle child, uh, six years old. It means who is like God. Micah was an Old Testament prophet. Kylie, my daughter, and my last kid, her name is Australian for boomerang. (laughs) And it means that mom and dad were tired of naming children. (laughs) Okay? Okay. uh, we don't often think about this, and I don't know what it is, whether it's prophecy or just the sovereignty of God, but when God names someone, it, it, it's an ex- explanation of their essential character and their most important part of their nature. So we have four names for Jesus here in this text, and they're not normal names that we call Jesus, but they're essential. Now, let me warn you, I've got 14 minutes and 28 seconds left. Um, each one of these names is a whole sermon, okay? And, and the depth of what we enjoy about Jesus coming out of these names is significant. I'm gonna fly by these, but I in, encourage them for your deeper meditation later this week, okay? Um, four names for Jesus that should fuel our joy this Christmas. Number one, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Two things you should know about this text. Um, Counselor is not uh, what you and I picture of counselor today in our modern society. Uh, you know, it's, counselor isn't someone you, you, know, you go to, you lay on a black couch, they take out a pen and ask questions and listen really well. That's not a counselor. By the way, that I know counselors do way more than that, okay? Um, I know because I've needed them. Um, uh, so that, that's not a counselor. A counselor in this text in the Old Testament would be an advisor to the king. Okay? It is the four-star generals. It's the entire presidential cabinet. That's what's being talked about as counselors. Jesus is the informed decision maker. He is the all-wise advisor to the, uh, to the one in charge. What's also interesting to me is that the Hebrew word for wonderful, I just think it's kind of a word that doesn't make sense. The real meaning, I think, is more uh, impressive to me. It's more helpful for me. Wonderful in the Hebrew doesn't just mean delightful and pleasing, but it also means miraculous. In fact, it's the most strong Hebrew word, as close as you can get to supernatural or miraculous in the Hebrew. And there's just not words for that often in the, in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. This is the miracle-working counselor. 
the miracle working advisor. And it gives us some reality about Jesus that we all need to come to grips with this morning. Because uh, it's something that we don't often talk about, but, but it is essential for us if we're going to trust in Jesus when the land's being taken over or when there's enemies at the gates. Okay? Jesus knows everything. And this is one of those omnis, right? We kind of got over the omni, omniscience. See, he knows everything. And by everything, I don't just mean everything that is here. He knows every possibility of every choice that has ever been made in the everything. He knows every way everything could go. He knows exactly how it's going to go, and he knows exactly what is best, and he knows exactly how it ought to. And, and so we have this idea in this presentation of Jesus as the all-knowing, all-wise informant for us. And that's significant, okay? Um, I was uh, traveling through Europe and uh, actually got all the way to St. Petersburg in Russia. And uh, I was a little younger. Um, we're cool here. This is a young, hip group. We can talk about alcohol here, right? Right, we're good? I don't know if that would go over well at my church down the street. Um, so I'm in St. Peter. I'm in Russia. So if you're going to be in Russia, what are you going to You're going to drink vodka, right? And not a ton, okay? Not a ton. I'm a pastor. I wasn't a pastor yet, but uh, it's still. <laughs> not to, like, uh, and so there's this, like, okay, I'm here. I'm going to do caviar, and I'm going to do vodka, and then I'm going to get out of here because it's really cold. Um, but it, it's a thing. So, like, you know, you, you go and you figure it out. So uh, you ask a Russian, and they'll tell you. This is bad. I'm giving drinking advice. <laughs> and, and sermon. Uh, chilled vodka. Drink just a little. Again, just a little. And then you smell a cut onion. Have any of you guys know? Like, this is literally how they, I know, it sounds amazing. Like, it's good, okay? But if, if you're going to learn about something, you might as well go to the person who created it. Like, the one who knows most of Russians know vodka, okay? They know how to, and as weird as it might sound to us, they know how it's best enjoyed, Jesus created everything. He knows everything. He knows how this thing that we do day in and day out is best enjoyed. So like, go to him. He is a supernatural counselor who advises you in the ways of joy. Like, when God gives you rules, those aren't like, oh, try to kill your fun. This is Jesus, creator of the universe, being like, dude, this is like the best thing ever. This is the way I made it to run, and this is what's best for your soul. That's, that's how Jesus does counseling. You are not smarter than Jesus. And when you think you are, when you think that God's rules are getting in the way of your life, you're the one who's got it wrong. He is the wonderful counselor. He knows. Embrace him. Listen to him. He knows what's best. It's a significant reality. I think it's something about Jesus that we need to get our hands on because his commands become life-giving rather than life-taking. So, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. The second name given to Jesus is Mighty God, okay? Uh, this, in the Hebrew, refers to a strong warrior who's never lost a battle and has already won the war. A perfect description of Jesus, right? He never lost a battle. He wins every war. He's already won it. And this is significant, okay? Because this description of a strong warrior is one 
who has no weaknesses. What a perfect description of Jesus. One who has no lack. He doesn't need anything. Therefore, he has no vulnerable vulnerabilities. He doesn't need air. He can't be choked. He doesn't need gravity. He can't be tripped. He doesn't need food. He can't be starved. He doesn't need, he, he doesn't uh, have any limitations. He cannot be bound. He doesn't lack knowledge. He cannot be tricked. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be weakened. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be defeated. That's our mighty God. This is the mighty God that we see in Jesus. Now, um, one of my favorite parts of hanging out with your pastor is um, we like to rib each other on theological areas that we kind of disagree in, but we don't actually disagree in, right? It's our favorite. In fact, I've even done it with some of your people, uh, just kind of talking through some theological areas. So it, I got to take this opportunity to come and preach at Anthem to kind of go into an area that's a little eh, right? It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be demonstrating our relationship. He's worried. <laughs> He's worried. Okay, let, let's talk about this. Um, we've had this discussion. Um, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've thought about free will. Okay, right? Anyone else? Yeah, thought you gone there. You tried to figure it out. Complicated question. The idea of free will is an important theological reality that we all need to wrestle with, okay? It's something that's critical to our faith to acknowledge that exists. Free will absolutely exists. God has it. He has absolute free will. Now, you can talk about whether we have it or not. That's kind of a later discussion. But... I think it's essential. Part of God being a mighty God. For God to be mighty, it must mean that nothing can restrain him, that his will is entirely and utterly free to do as he pleases. He gets to do what he wants and no one tells him no. That's what it means to be mighty. That's what it means to be mighty God. Now, I know that does, it has problems with your view, a, a worldview, and it shifts some things, but I think it's a shift that's necessary to embrace. Okay? Everything else in the world is contingent. It's dependent. It's com completely reliant. We all rely on the rules of physics, right? We all rely on necessities for life, limitations of our own physical existence. We're all dependent and conditioned by our past, our genetic inheritance, the context in which we live, or, or a million other things that limit us, but not God. He does as he pleases. Now, that creates some difficult spaces, I get that. But here's the relief, here's the joy of that reality. Your sissified version of Jesus is not enough to get you through the hardest seasons of life. Okay, um, I'm a SoCal boy through and through, born and bred, um, traveled elsewhere, and uh, don't understand it. Um, so my wife and I were driving through the Midwest, and. Uh, and just flat, like you just, you, your dog runs away, you watch him for five days. Just, he's just, <laughs> just flat out there. And we kind of, it's kind of weird, flat, and these storm clouds are rolling in, and then we realize like, we're the only ones on the road. Like what's going on here? And then we pass a couple overpasses, and we, my wife and I were like, what, this is weird. All the cars that should be on the road are all packed under, passed, parked under the overpass, like way up in there. Like, you know what's going on? It's tornado warning. SoCal boy doesn't get it. Doesn't get it at all. But evidently the practice is, if there's a tornado warning, uh, like, 
what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go find refuge in the strongest thing possible that you know on the road. The strongest available thing is those massive concrete bridges that are spanning the freeways. And so you get up right under there, that's your best shot, okay? During the storm, we run to what we believe is the strongest. And if you don't have eyes on Jesus as mighty God, you're going to run to other things. They will fail you. Your uh, compulsive need to control, that's a, that's a thing you run to, right? Your compulsive need to uh, find your identity in friends or relationships or, uh, or significant other, that's, that's gonna fail. Like, you run to the thing that you believe is strongest, and so you have to have eyes on Jesus as mighty God. Like that's gotta move you. That's gotta be it hugely significant for you. And yet, the combination, because we get kind of weary of mighty God that's a little creepy for us, but here's the relief. Mighty God came as a baby, man. I mean, that humility, that combined with that power, that service, combined with that strength is everything we need in those seasons. So mighty God. So we're embracing the true nature of Jesus. Jesus, God calls him mighty God. And not only is that obviously a declaration of his divinity, but it's, it's a statement of his strength. And we need to get eyes on that. Third name for Jesus in our significantly uh, lessening time uh, that we've got left is everlasting father. Now let me run through this. This is important. It's abnormal for us to talk about Jesus as father. But that's exactly what this text is, is doing. Now, when we talk about Father, we're normally talking about the first person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, first person of the Trinity, Father. But here in this text, Jesus is being called the Father. Now, that's not saying that uh, Jesus and the Father are the same and that it's just a manifestation. That's not against the Trinity. No, that's, that's not it at all. It's also not a statement necessarily for the Trinity. Like, this name is not a reference to, like, the fact that God... Uh, Jesus and God the Father are one. It's not what's going on here. What's going on is in the Old Testament, this idea of Father isn't necessarily a designation of the first person of the Trinity. In the Old Testament, when God is called Father, it's a reference to how much he cares. So he's called the Father of Israel. That's not like, oh, he's the first person of the Trinity to Israel. No, he's, he's the one who cares for Israel. He's called the father of the nations. He's called the father of certain individuals in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, when you see the concept of father, it's not necessarily saying, not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. It's just saying, the God who cares. Okay, so that's the description here. So you gotta make sure you get it right and you're in the right uh, mindset. But this identification has father has more to do with God's care and concern for the people he loves than it does delineating the difference between the first and second person of the Trinity. Now, this is essential, and one of my favorite stories about Jesus is about his fatherly care and concern, okay? Uh, Mark chapter five, uh, Jesus is being called by Jairus, saying, hey, my daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her. And uh, he's just healed a whole bunch of people, and, and Jairus, the, the leader, significant, powerful leader, it's like, Jesus, come this way. Jesus goes. And on the way, there's a woman with an issue of blood. Now, this, her circumstances are so difficult that it's even hard to describe in church, right? I mean, this is everything, every woman's nightmare, and we, we, like, her situation is desperately sad. So much so that she believes she can't even talk to Jesus, otherwise she will make him unclean. She definitely can't touch him because it's against the law. Like, this is anti-law. The Old Testament law says you can't 
touch other people when you're having this issue. So for 12 years, according to the text, no one's touched this woman. No one's hugged her. Evidently, she doesn't have a father like Jairus' daughter has to come and entreat Jesus to come and deal, help her. She's all on her own significantly outcast, not dealt with, family excluded. Family would have been like, oh, this is a, a sin problem. We got to cast you out. This, this is a huge. And so this woman doesn't even want to talk about her situation, nor is she allowed to be in the crowd, nor is she allowed to touch people. So there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. Man, they, I don't even want to get into what that means had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment. For she said, if, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. That's amazing, that's our Jesus. But look what happens next. Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. I don't understand what that means. I'll ask him later immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I think this is an amazing picture of Jesus. And I think it's helpful for us because this woman had faith to believe that Jesus could heal her, but she didn't have faith to believe that Jesus cared. Like she, Jesus was mighty God to her, but not father. And in the absence of a father, this comparison between Jairus' daughter that he is on the way to and her apparent absence of anyone who cares, can't imagine, she's just trying to get away with getting healed and get away from everybody because she's convinced no one cares. Jesus is like, there's a little girl dying right now, but I'm stopping to take care of this woman's soul. That's our Jesus. For us, Father, some of us doesn't bring great memories for perhaps you. Don't judge your heavenly Father by the performance of your earthly Father, okay? He cares in a way that you will never experience on this earth, and it's an amazing thing. He proved it by dying for you. He never stops caring. He is an everlasting father. Maybe you're missing your dad this Christmas. You've got one that never fails. It will always be there. Never forsakes, never leaves, never dies, never disappoints in Jesus. Fourth point. This, fourth name for Jesus, he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. The message of the Messiah and his name was a position of a political ruler. It's at the center of his, this passage. It's political. It's government. So we've already talked about vodka. Let's talk about politics too. Okay, well, why not? Let's just jump all into it. Okay, pour gasoline all over it. Okay. It doesn't matter what your political views are or what side of the aisle you're on. The universal acknowledgement of all humans who have been governed by all other humans is someone's got to come and fix this mess. Okay, someone's got to be able to do this better. That's so why we keep on reinventing and like that's every human rule or system of governments is absolutely the problem and often not the solution. 
And so whatever side of the aisle on capitalism, social democracy, that what to build the wall, not constitutional republic, I don't care, okay? You can vote for a politician, but you put your faith in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Ultimately, peace comes from Jesus. And if you've ever been satisfied in a human rule or a human government, it's because you're ignorant about what's going on behind the scenes. All of it, all of its failures, point you to the better ruler who's coming. I, for one, am looking forward to the dictatorship of Jesus on earth. That's going to be amazing. I'm not so pro-democracy that I'm not looking forward to the tyrannical rule of Jesus because that's going to be fantastic. The tyranny of peace in a world of war. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, another promise fulfilled to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth. This is the world that our heart is longing for. This is the world that our heart is voting for. This is the world that we all see and when we complain about and when we're watching the news. But the solution's Jesus, guys. So bring the message of the gospel to yourself, to your home, to your neighborhood, because without him, we've got nothing. Every single one of us have plenty of reasons to have the most joyful Christmas ever, because Jesus is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace, and he promises a great future for everyone who's found in him. Let me pray for you.